Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where usually we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. But once a month, thanks to the support of our patrons, we do a bonus horror adjacent episode. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. It's our February bonus episode. Yay! Yay! Because it's the shortest month, the options that we had for our patrons to vote on were all horror-adjacent shorts. Yes. And uh, they voted for Buster Keaton's The Haunted House. Cool. You're a big fan of Buster Keaton. Yes, I am. Um, I happened upon him one day, I think it was on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, and he just, like, made me smile. And so I got... A whole collection of his stuff whenever I was sad during university just put on a short and had a good time yeah like you know Sarah and I met in a film studies course in university like film <laughs> studies like 201 you know most of our relationship in the early days was a lot of like me showing Sarah movies and being kind of like a a cinephile And being like, aha, you should see this and that and the other thing. Allow me to show you this three and a half hour science fiction silent film. Metropolis. He's talking about Metropolis. Yeah. yeah. Um, So I think like it was kind of like a, a, a cool leg up on me when you were like, well, allow me to pull out my buster keaton dvd collection from kino yes exactly i had kino before i had criterion <laughs> you had kino before you knew like what, what kino was. was yeah and i, I was, was just like, like oh, cool. oh this is how i can get a collection of like early buster keaton stuff yeah and i was like oh cool it's from a good dvd company because silent films are a crapshoot if you don't know what you're doing <laughs> i have not really seen much of harold lloyd hmm And uh, what I've seen of Charlie Chaplin has been minimal, but my main exposure to Chaplin is through The Great Dictator. Yeah, which isn't exactly like classic Uh, Chaplin. Yeah. Most of the Chaplin I've seen is from film school. Mm -hmm. Um, So I saw The Gold Rush. I saw Modern Times, The Great Dictator. You and I have also watched um, Monsieur Verdot, I think is the name of it. The one where he's playing like... The wife murderer, um, oh, yes. <laughs> which is which is also like not typical Chaplin. Um, I haven't really seen a lot of like Chaplin's classic shorts, but generally speaking, with like the three big names of silent comedy, um, because people don't remember Fatty Arbuckle like they should. I do, but that's because of Buster. Chaplin's stuff is a little bit more maudlin. Mm-hmm. Keaton's and Lloyd's is more like big into the physical comedy and not that like there isn't in Chaplin, but, um, and then, you know, Keaton's distinction among the three was the stone face. Yes. Um, so how would you like us to dive into this? Do you want me to talk about Keaton first? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, especially for listeners who maybe like aren't familiar with a, you know, film, maker whose glory days were a hundred years ago. Yes. So Joseph Frank Keaton was born in 1895 in Pika, Kansas to vaudevillian parents who were on a road show. He was named Joseph after his father, making him the sixth Joseph of his line. Mm -hmm. And his father who went by Joe brought his son quickly into the vaudevillian family. Joe Keaton and his wife, Mira, had a traveling show with Harry Houdini. Did you know this? No. Um, And they were in the uh, poorly titled Mohawk Indian Medicine Company. Got it. Where they would do vaudevillian shows and then sell patent medicine on the side. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's quite a racket. As little Joseph grew up, he began participating in stage acts as young as the age of three. And their act was called the Three Keatons, where (laughs) 
Mira would um, play the saxophone on the side, while little Joseph would disobey his dad on stage, prompting Joe to throw his son off stage into the crowd, into nearby musicians, uh, you name it. Yeah, just throw your kid at things. That seems fine. <laughs> uh, reportedly, little Joseph loved it. They would find that, you know, him like laughing and having a big smile on his face undercut the comedy of the act. So that's when he started to develop his stone face look. Huh. That's real early. Yeah. Thus, Buster was born as a kid flung around the stage learning to take a fall. <laughs> um, to help with the throwing of his son, uh, they sewed a uh, suitcase handle onto the back of Buster's clothes. <laughs> And this meant that Buster also learned how to land right, no matter how he was thrown. He was often called in newspapers, the little boy who can't be damaged. <laughs> it is it is wild to me that this is like his original skill set is like, oh, I learned it all because my act involved my father throwing me bodily across the room. Yes, there were many... Um, accusations of like child abuse and such sure uh and the authorities would you know come up and buster would be like i have no broken bones i have no bruises it's all an act it's fine so buster grew up with this stage life he was taught to read and write by his mother mira and at age 21 buster and his mother left joseph keaton due to um him having increased alcoholism oh so they moved to new york and then uh, Buster went off to fight in World War I in 1916. Oh, I don't think I realized that he fought in the war. He was part of the American Expeditionary Forces with the 40th Infantry Division. Um, and during his service, he developed an ear infection, which led to permanent hearing damage. Huh, I didn't know that either. When he made his way back to the U.S., he met Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Now, Fatty, uh, as was the way how he went. Um, yeah, that was his like stage moniker. Yeah, um, he would be writing as well as directing and starring in shorts, um, as well as getting his start on the stage. And when he met Buster, he was in the middle of filming the 1917 short, The Butcher Boy. And, you know, Fatty was like, hey, Buster, why don't you come in and do a scene? Buster blew Fatty away. So he was immediately hired on to the film to be a co-star. Through Fatty, Buster would meet film producer Joseph Schenk and appear in the next 13 Fatty films, even learning to direct as basically a second unit director. With these successful shorts with Arbuckle under his belt, Buster had proven himself to Schenk, who gave Buster his own production unit, which came to be known as Buster Keaton Productions. The first two real comedy Buster made on his own was 1920's One Week, and the hits just kept coming. It's been one week since you looked at me. <laughs> so the film we are watching today, The Haunted House, was Buster's fifth two-reeler. By the time of its release, Buster had the full-length The Saphead under his belt as a writer, while he was also continuing working on his shorts. Buster would also expand to write and direct features as well by 1922, starting with Our Hospitality, and would put out about one to two per year, including 1926's The General and 1928's Steamboatville Jr., starring in all. And while he was credited as writer and director in pretty much all of these, um, Buster would have frequent collaborations with others, including Clyde Brookman, Jean Havez, and Edward F. Klein, like in today's picture, who would, uh, all of them would um, participate with directing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you're on camera in nearly every scene and you're doing like complicated stunts with like complicated timing, you know, having someone else be a co-director is very useful. Yeah. By and large, even with collaborators, um, Buster was the driving creative force of his films, for better and for worse. Um, 1926's The General is considered one of Buster's main like key films, if you wanted to look at his like body of work. Yeah, it's the one that like film critics are going to sit you down and be like, this is the best one. 
Yeah, it's set during the Civil War and is not wholly a comedy, which threw off audiences at the time, um, who also were like, this is the Civil War you're talking about. You shouldn't be making fun of it. Yeah, especially when like it's the 20s. So it's only been like 80 years. So like people who fought in the Civil War are still around to go to your movie. Yeah. Well, looking back, the general is applauded, especially with its expensive train stunt that you might have seen where there's a train going across a wooden bridge and then it like crumbles and explodes. That stunt in the film itself is considered a major achievement for Buster, but it was very expensive. So that film struggled. And then, of course, you have the negative reaction to it being a you know, comedic element, but also people being like, well, this isn't a comedy because it had more dramatic elements. So reviews were mixed. So it was ultimately a financial loss. As a result, um, his distributor, United Artists, mandated a production manager to rein Buster in. Um, he made two more films after this with this production manager looking over his shoulder But by then, Buster had had enough. He decided to move from indie pictures that he was basically making himself to MGM into the studio system in 1928. As you can imagine, going from running your own production company to working within the studio system causes a bit of a a culture shock, especially for someone who was working in vaudeville since he was three. Um, And Buster came to realize quickly that this decision meant nearly total loss of control and creative freedom. He saw this with his first film with MGM, uh, which was The Cameraman, uh, another film that is lauded as like a huge Buster Keaton film. The studio brought on studio director Edward Sedgwick to be like the credited director, and that was kind of seen as taking control away from Buster. He also came head to head with studio execs again in 1929. Um, Buster had been pretty interested in the new talkies. And so he petitioned for his next movie, Spite Marriage, to have sound, which the studio denied. Later on, uh, he would then go on to make silent film and the studio would be like no this needs to be a talkie so just consistently kind of butting heads with buster um and i think what might have been kind of the final straw for him was that he was forced to use stunt doubles in certain scenes at mgm ah yeah yeah mgm is looking to protect their investment whereas buster's like but the stuntmen brought on to just play me don't get the laughs yeah i mean the the thing was that like the stunts are the jokes yeah right and like they're the point and that's what he does it would be like getting like a dancing double in for fred astaire or something like it just doesn't make sense but like you can see why the studio wouldn't understand that and would think it would make sense Mm -hmm. yeah So as Buster continued working with MGM into the 30s, he became increasingly frustrated with that lack of creative control. And this frustration also compounded the personal challenges he was having. So since 1924, with the birth of his second son, his wife, Natalie and Buster were increasingly unhappy and distant with each other. Ultimately, they divorced in 1932 And Natalie would change his two sons' last names to her maiden name, which was quite a blow to Buster. Yeah, particularly since it breaks the tradition, since, like, Buster's eldest son, I think, was also Joe. Yeah, Joseph and then Robert. Yeah. Buster turned to alcohol as a refuge and fell into alcoholism, briefly being institutionalized to help with managing this addiction. Although his... Early friendships with Harry Houdini came in handy during that. Yes. uh, At one time, he was put into a straitjacket and he escaped thanks to what he learned from Houdini. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Speaking of Houdini, there is apocrypha that um, it was Houdini who named him Buster. That's Mm. what Buster would tell people. Right. Um, But it's more likely that it was because his act was being thrown into things and being busted up. Yeah. During one alcoholic binge, Buster eloped with his nurse, Mae Scriven, 
1933, um, but they would divorce three years later due to his infidelity. Um, however, Buster did find success in treatment through aversion therapy. Now, during this whole chaotic time in the 30s, Buster made the transition to talkies and partnered with other comedians in MGM films, like 1932's Speak Easily. Part of the idea of partnering him with other comedians uh, was MGM trying to be, like, rejuvenating Buster. Like, they could see Buster was having a hard time and his work was suffering, so they thought, well, if we partner him, maybe that will bring enough life to the picture that they'll still be a hit. Right. But unfortunately, with the personal chaos, um, MGM ultimately dropped Buster. So Buster would move back to making independent pictures, foreign films, and doing cameos. Into the 1940s, Buster was sober. And he married Eleanor Norris, who turned out to be a good match for him, despite the 23-year age difference. Through the 40s, uh, Buster started making movies with Columbia, uh, making a series of pictures until 1941, which he decided to end because he felt like he couldn't come up with fresh material. Mm. um, And he felt it wasn't fair to keep making movies that were just tired. Buster and Eleanor moved to Europe to start making some European films, as well as acting on the stage together in Paris. And thanks to Eleanor, uh, she pushed Buster to start making some TV appearances. Ultimately, Eleanor is kind of credited with Buster's revival, mainly by introducing him to film programmer Raymond Rohauer, um, who organized and agreed to a re-release of some of Buster's silent films. So with those silent films coming back into um, film festivals, into the drive-in theater, um, that got Buster back into people's minds, thus more TV appearances, and it just kind of grew from there. Yeah, I knew that like Buster Keaton marathons were like a trendy thing in like the 60s and 70s and stuff like that. Um, And I knew that that was like a big part of his revival of popularity. I didn't know it was Raymond Rohauer who was part of it. If you want to learn more about Raymond Rohauer, you can listen to our episode on the fall of the house of Usher from 1928, uh, because he Raymond Rohauer owns the rights to like a ton of silent films. Cause he just like bought up a huge collection of them in the sixties. Oh. And, um, it's made life difficult here in the present day. Um, because like people who want to do restorations and stuff have to go through like, Rohauer and his like estate I think at this point um so like if you want to see Fall the House of Usher it's his restoration that you see kind of thing okay um so like I said it led to a resurgence in Buster's career and he would get steady work in commercials and what I'll call business films so for example in 1952 he starred in John Deere's industrial short film um, and then there was also the 1965's The Railroader from the National Film Board of Canada. Corporate film is Corporate the, film. Uh, what those are called. Okay. Yeah. Buster would star in 1965's movie titled Film, uh, written by Samuel Beckett and directed by Alan Schneider. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it seemed like things were on the up and up for Buster, or at least steady. Mm. You know, that that's all he can really hope for, right? In January 1966, Buster went to the hospital because he had a really bad cough, and he thought it was just a really bad case of bronchitis. Um, But the doctor said, no, it's not bronchitis, you have lung cancer. And for reasons that are unclear, they didn't tell him it was terminal. So he was just pacing the hospital floor waiting to go home Mm. because he thought it was just like, okay, once this bad cough clears up, I can leave, right? Unfortunately, um, by the next month, February, he would pass away from the lung cancer at age 70. Mm. If you were to look at Buster's filmography, you would see like a ton of stuff in the silent era and then not really anything in the sound era. Um, And a lot of what you might see in the sound era are more like cameos. And I think of, for example, Sunset Boulevard's cameo where he's playing cards with other uh, presumed washed up silent film stars. Right. So you might think that, okay, well, he just fell out of favor, 
and his career crumbled. But that wasn't really the case, as I tried to like outline. Like, yes, it went down. He wasn't a starring kind of person, but he had steady work, and that's kind of what matters in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what also matters is the accolades that people put at your feet. Um, so he has two Hollywood stars, one for film and one for TV. Um, In total, he has six films in the National Film Registry, making him one of the most honored filmmakers. And some things that I thought were kind of neat is Salvador Dali wrote a 1927 essay titled um, Film Art, Film Antiartistico, where he uh, described Buster's physical acting as pure poetry Longtime listeners of the podcast will know that Roger Ebert is near and dear to my heart. And he said of Buster that he was, quote, the greatest of all the clowns, not only because of what he did, but how he did it. Harold Lloyd made us laugh as much. Chaplin moved us more deeply, but none had more courage than Buster. Um, And to kind of tie it to the present, Johnny Knoxville, Mm -hmm. actor and stuntman, cites Buster as inspiration for many a stunt, and he actually recreated one of Buster's stunts for Jackass 2. And that's relevant because Jackass 3 just came out. Actually, I think it was Jackass 4. Oh, God. They're very old, and so are we. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, he's he's hugely influential, right? Like A big influence on even Jackie Chan. Yeah, huge influence on Jackie Chan. Orson Welles, I think said that the general was his favorite movie. Yes. Um, yeah, just, you know, big deal, big deal guy. So at the time that this film was made, that's back in 1921, he's still doing his shorts. He hasn't like graduated to features yet. Um, but he's, you know, on his own. And at this time, um, his production company was making these shorts for Metro pictures. Metro had been founded in 1915 for the purpose of buying up production companies to prevent them from falling into the hands of other studios. <laughs> okay. So basically it was like a bunch of like business guys who didn't want to see certain production companies like be bought out by like Paramount or Universal. So they made this company to buy them out instead. Mm-hmm. Um, this was in New York uh, at the time. In 1919, Metro moved out to Hollywood with the rest of the film industry. And by 1920, they had stars like John and Ethel Barrymore, Lillian Gish, Jackie Coogan, Marion Davies, and, of course, Buster Keaton uh, working for them. Marcus Lowe, the owner of the Lowe's theater chain, purchased Metro in 1920. Um, But he was dissatisfied with the quality and quantity of their releases, So in 1924, he would purchase Samuel Goldwyn's Goldwyn Pictures and merge it with Metro to form Metro-Goldwyn. And then later that year, he would purchase Louis B. Mayer Productions to merge it with Metro-Goldwyn to make Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. So that makes sense why Buster would go to them after working with United Artists, because he's familiar with the people there. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the like linking element between Buster's time at Metro to United Artists, um, is his producer, Joseph M. Schenck, who you mentioned. So Schenck had been born to a Jewish family in Russia in 1876. He emigrated to New York in 1892 and he got his start in the entertainment industry when he and his brother Nicholas operated concessions at the Fort George amusement park, uh, in New York state. And doing that made them think like, ah, there's potential in this amusement park game. (laughs) So they bought Palisades amusement park in 1909. And that led to, uh, them forming a business partnership with Marcus Lowe, um, who was like, Oh, you guys know how to manage like entertainment venues. And they came into his business with the theater chains. In 1916, Schenk married Norma Talmadge, uh, actress and star at Vitagraph Studios. They moved out west when the film industry did in the teens, although they would eventually divorce in 1934. Buster married her sister, Natalie. Yes. So Schenk worked for Lowe 
And that's how he got involved in Metro Pictures and became like Buster's producer. And then Shank got an offer to become president of United Artists and moved over to United Artists as the president there. And that's why Buster's indie movies were distributed through United Artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, all of these things, as true today as it was then, a lot of Hollywood is who you know. Yes. In 1933, Schenck and Daryl F. Zanuck founded 20th Century Pictures, which merged with Fox in 1935. So yeah, as you, as you pointed out, Norma Talmadge was the sister of Natalie Talmadge. Natalie was Norma's younger sister. She was born in 1896 in Brooklyn. The youngest sister of the three was Constance, and all three of them became movie actresses. But like... Norma was the star. Yeah. Uh, Natalie appeared in a number of movies before she married Buster Keaton on May 31st, 1921, um, which means that that was a number of months after she appeared in tonight's movie, The Haunted House, as a fainting bank customer. Uh, As you mentioned, they would have two sons, um, but their marriage deteriorated. They got divorced in 33 And in addition to changing the son's names to Talmadge, she also forbid them contact with Buster. Uh, She never remarried, though, and passed away in 1969. You mentioned some of Keaton's collaborators. Um, So Keaton co-wrote and co-directed The Haunted House with his regular collaborator, Edward F. Klein, who was born in 1891 and began working for Max Sennett's Keystone Studios in 1914, uh, working on Chaplin shorts occasionally. Fatty Arbuckle got his start at Keystone Studios um, as like one of the Keystone cops. And then when Arbuckle went solo, he formed his own studio, Kamik. And then when Arbuckle went to feature films, uh, he basically like left Kamik to Keaton and it became Buster Keaton Productions with the assistance of Joseph Schenck, as earlier mentioned, all of which is to say that Edward Klein followed Arbuckle from Keystone to Kamik. And then when Keaton went solo from Arbuckle, Keaton hired Klein on as his co-director. Klein was the only person other than Keaton in Keaton's like regular company who was allowed to be a gag man. Mm -hmm. So like he's the only person other than Buster coming up with the jokes. After Keaton's career decline, uh, Klein had to kind of like figure out something new. He ended up partnering with comedian W.C. Fields on his films. And eventually Klein's movie career declined as W.C. Fields's did. Um, But eventually he rejoined Keaton in the 1950s when Keaton was starting to become really successful on television. Uh, However, Uh, Edward Klein passed away in 1961. Klein uh, also cameos in this film in a small role, um, and the rest of the cast is filled out with Keaton regulars, such as actress Virginia Fox. So Virginia Fox also got her start at Max Sennett's Keystone Studios as one of Sennett's Bathing Beauties, (laughs) um, which was a concept that Klein came up with Uh, So you basically had the Keystone Cops and you had the Bathing Beauties and like what the Bathing Beauties deal is should be kind of obvious. In 1920, Fox appeared in the role of Keaton's new bride in the film Neighbors. She was 19 when she appeared in The Haunted House. And in 1924, she married Daryl F. Zanuck, who would then co-found Fox with Shank Norma Talmadge's husband, who is the sister of Keaton, who, so like, again, yeah, like it's a whole, <laughs> they're all connected. Yeah. Like they're all connected. Um, she retired from acting after marrying Zanuck, but she remained highly influential on Zanuck and how he ran the studio. They separated in 1956 due to all of Zanuck's infidelities. Um, but when Zanuck's um, mental health declined in the 1970s, she returned and stayed with him and like took care of him at his house until he died in 1979. And then she passed away in 1982. 
Another member of Buster's regular company who appears in this film is Big Joe Roberts, um, who was a vaudevillian who originally appeared in an act with his wife, and they would summer at Joe Keaton's actor's colony that he, like, ran for vaudevillians. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a whole thing. So Roberts became friends with the Keaton family. And uh, when Buster began making his own films, uh, he asked Roberts to join him. Big Joe Roberts was, you know, a big guy. And when Keaton was co-starring with Arbuckle, they formed like a classic like fat guy, thin guy partnership. Yeah. And this kind of like pairing of like a big fat guy and like a thin tall guy um, is just like super common. If you look at like silent comedians, like you have Laurel and Hardy uh, is the big one. Well, even look at Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Abbott and Costello fits the same mold. Um, C-3PO and R2-D2. Um, regardless, I think when Keaton goes solo, you can kind of see Roberts as like filling the fatty Arbuckle like role when Keaton needed to have a body who... Uh, would contrast with him because that's the whole yeah. reason why in the physical comedy those duos worked was the contrast right for sure roberts probably would have just kept appearing in keaton's films forever if not for the fact that he had a stroke and passed away in 1923 at the age of 52 oof that's young so cinematography for the haunted house was handled by keaton's like standard cameraman the legendary elgin leslie who keaton called the metronome <laughs> you have to remember that this movie was made back in the day when cameras were all hand cranked, mm -hmm. which meant that your frame rate could alter from cameraman to cameraman. It could alter within the same film because we're only human. Uh, and it would like, you know, screen in a projection booth at the theater, like at a variable frame rate. Cause the projectionist is hand cranking like frame rates all over the place in this era. Um, Elgin Leslie uh, started out in film in 1911 shooting one reel Western shorts for American Midwest, which was actually the American branch of George Melia's film company. And after doing these Westerns, uh, he was selected to travel with Melia's around the world. In 80 days? Sure. Um, <laughs> to like Southeast Asia and places doing these like exotic location shoots. So Leslie was like extremely experienced at doing outdoor shooting, which was Keaton's preference. He returned to the U.S. in 1913 from his tour with Melia's, and he went to go work at Keystone Studios. Uh, and Leslie gained a reputation for clear, clean, consistent photography with a steady, regular hand. Um, which mentioned him exactly. Uh, and this resulted in him becoming the favored cameraman of fatty Arbuckle. The thing about being really, um, consistent and clean with your cranking is it meant that you wouldn't get motion blur. Um, if your film was being, you know, played back at a different frame rate and things like that, or as you did camera moves, and things and that was really important if your silent comedy wasn't super super broad like if you wanted to have comedy that was based on like more specific subtle movements mm -hmm. like if it's important what your fingers are doing as your arm is moving as opposed to your arm just kind of being like a blur as you move it around um so yeah he became fatty's favored cameraman and when arbuckle left to form comique leslie went with him and it was at Kameek that he developed a working relationship with Keaton. And then when Arbuckle went to features, Leslie stayed with Keaton. Um, and he shot all of Keaton's shorts and all of, well, six of Keaton's feature films, um, all of them up to The Cameraman. Okay. Um, which was sort of the last feature that Keaton had the ability to, like, choose his own crew for. Keaton relied on Leslie's ability to accurately and consistently shoot at any frame rate requested, which enabled Keaton to create elaborate in-camera special effects, such as the nine Buster Keatons in 1921's The Playhouse. Yes, that might be one of my favorites. 
I really enjoyed the playhouse. Yeah, that film came about because I think Keaton had injured himself and couldn't do like big stunts for that one. So they came up with like a different gimmick, which was the special trick photography. It's also a parody of uh, another comedian at the time. But yes, the whole thing is like back in this time. Um, If you wanted to do special effects, they were what we call in-camera special effects. So if you have two busters on screen at one time, it's because you shot one of them first and then you rewound the film while it was still in the camera and then shot the scene again. And that means that the two busters need to be timed to each other, not in the editing booth, but in the camera during a time when the camera is hand cranked. Yeah. So the fact that Leslie was able to just like accurately like a metronome do all these things just made him like invaluable in fact following the cameraman in 1928 when keaton lost creative control of his films leslie just retired from filmmaking um and he passed away in 1944 at age 61 wow so the haunted house was released on february 10th 1921 as a two reel silent Um, So that means that it would have been part of like a standard Metro Pictures pre-show program along with like, well, 1921 is a little early for a cartoon, but like a newsreel and things like that that would go in front of a Metro Pictures feature film. Like, I don't know, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse would have been coming on around this time (laughs) with Rudolph Valentino. And because of that, like, you know, you don't have individual numbers for like how successful was a short film because it's just part of a program right yeah um but yeah we're watching the haunted house as part of the kino films buster keaton short film collection that you have which is still like the best place to get your buster keaton shorts is from kino there are a lot of buster keaton films on canopy if you can get access to that, um, I All don't you know. Needs a library card. That's that's true. I don't know if Haunted House is on there, but hey, ch- check it out. W- watch some Buster. Chaplin overshadows everyone, and Buster deserves a bit more limelight. For sure. That's a joke because limelight's was, a Chaplin film, and he was did a cameo in it. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah I I sometimes feel like. Um, I don't really know where I got this impression, but over the years I got the impression that like Buster Keaton is like the hipster answer to who's your favorite silent film comedian, basically. It's like everyone says Chaplin. So if you want to be cool, you say Buster Keaton. And then poor Harold Lloyd is just out in the cold, (laughs) wiping his glasses in the rain. Um, I'm sure he has his fans. I'm sure he does too. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Haunted House from 1921, directed by Buster Keaton and Edward Klein. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Haunted House, directed by Buster Keaton and Edward F. Klein. From 1921. So, Sarah, what did you think? Good movie. Fun time. You've seen this one before. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I would. it's your DVD. I would assume you've seen all of the ones on that DVD before. Yes. Yeah. That's a silly question. What did you think? Yeah. It's fun. Is this your first time? I think I've seen this one with you before. Very simple plot synopsis. Yes. Buster Keaton plays a bank cashier. Also at the bank, there's a second cashier who is counterfeiting money. And the base of their operations is at this house that they are trying to spread rumors about that it is haunted to keep the cops out. Due to a mishap of a bank robbery gone awry by the counterfeiters, because they're about to be found out, um, Buster Keaton gets uh, mistakenly nabbed by the cops and he escapes, runs to this house. Also, at the same time, there's a production of Faust going on at the nearby theater 
and the audience doesn't like it. So they chase the play actors off stage and they happen to run into this house. And so when Buster comes in, he sees um, the counterfeiters pretending to be ghosts and he believes that they are actually ghosts. He runs into the devil from the Faust play, etc. Eventually, everything's sorted out. And Buster gets knocked on the head. He dreams he's heading up to heaven, going up the stairway to heaven. And then he slides down the stairs, down into hell, before being awoken and uh, hugged by the bank owner's daughter. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, very it's, simple. It's very simple. It's a two-reeler, right? And, you know, it's a silent film. So, And, you know, also, it's just an excuse for gags. Yes. Right? Yeah, it's it's tough to like talk about physical comedy in an audio medium, I guess, because you don't want to just be like describing every gag in the movie. Yeah, I will say that probably one of the standout gags of The Haunted House is there are these two skeletons bringing in parts of like a mannequin. And Buster watches them put together this mannequin who then once he's put together turns into a real person. Yeah. And um, that's not explained or anything. It's just, hey, a real person appears. And it's supposed to be like, hey, because we're trying to make it look like a haunted house. But that's probably like the best gag. The one that I see gift the most often anyways. Mm, That's definitely the measure, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, like you mentioned that that one's not explained. There's a lot of things in this short that don't make sense if you think about them too hard. Like... This whole idea of making a haunted house to keep the cops off you. Like it's the twenties. Right. I mean, I feel like making (laughs) just like rumors that the house is haunted is easier than like tricking the house out with a bunch of like trap stairways and trap doors and um, hiring a bunch of guys to walk around in bed sheets. Like it's like for the comedy, it's, it's, it's fine, but it's definitely like if you start thinking about it too long, it's like, that wouldn't work. That's silly. Um, but it does seem to work. The cops are chasing Buster and they're like, wait, that house is haunted. Yes. <laughs> Just feels like it's more work than they maybe needed to put into it. You know, <laughs> like they've got like a revolving floor in one of the rooms. Like, yeah, it's like, hey, the money that it took you to trick this house out probably outweighs the money you're going to get from this counterfeiting scheme. You guys. Big Joe Roberts, who plays the bad guy, I really liked him in this. He has, like, mm-hmm. a very good, like, swagger about him. Yeah, he has really good spats. hmm And, of course, you know, Buster's great. So handsome. The, I think, <laughs> biggest, like, running gag in this film is um, the main stairs in the house are tricked so that um, when you are traveling upon them they like flatten and you slide down and this like you know keeps happening to people and you know even when you think you've got it figured out it'll happen to you anyway and um, what i really like is that buster finds a way to make it interesting each time he goes down the stairs right it's not just the same like oh i slipped and fell yeah and then yeah that running gag is paid off in the heaven hell gag at the end yeah yeah which i i think is probably what puts the charm on this short mm-hmm. um, because otherwise it's like, yeah, okay, cool. We're in a haunted house or we're in a bank. Um, but the, him dreaming that he goes down to hell and that there's still gags where like the devil switches the Keaton is in mm-hmm. sign uh, when he arrives, like, I don't know, just like charming parts yeah. to it. Yeah. Absolutely. A charming little movie. A lot of the performers who aren't Keaton get like good little gags to themselves. It's the bank owner's daughter who figures out that the bank cashier is the bad guy because Keaton's not like trying to do anything here. He just went in this house for a place to hide and now he's just here dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I really liked a lot of the um, visual humor with the ghosts yeah, it's it's good and it's fun. I don't know as I have like a lot more to say about it than that. It does take a while to get to the haunted house. Like the front half of the movie is definitely mostly like gags at the bank with 
this money that gets covered in glue. Mm -hmm. So like I said in the first half, um, I haven't really seen any Harold Lloyd. And what I have seen of Charlie Chaplin is pretty limited. But I think what really captures me about Buster's films is that there is that charm to it and that there is that like, um, I guess like surrealist element of Mm -hmm. it where like he just finds ways to bring you the unexpected. Yes. Like there isn't this gag in this film, but he does it in a couple of others where like uh, the one that I'm thinking that comes to mind is he's running from the cops and he sees that there's a car that's about to pull away and we are seeing the car from the back and we see the spare tire on the back of the trunk. So he hops onto that tire ready to get taken away and then the car drives away and the tire is actually just a hanging sign yeah and just playing with perspective and what you expect to happen and he goes in a completely different direction yeah absolutely um there's a couple of like weird surreal gags in this one definitely the man that they assemble is one of them um And then the other that I really liked was when he's at the bank and he gets there for the start of his work day, um, he takes his cane and he just like puts it up against the wall and lets go. And it just sort of stays there like it's magnetic or something. And the um, handle of the cane is at the bottom. So now it's like a hook and he hangs his hat on it, which is, yeah, definitely like he's not even in the haunted house yet. And it's like, oh, huh but little jokes like that that are very unexpected and surreal um always get me at one point he adjusts a clock and he like unlocks it to move the hour and minute hand but when he unlocks it he reaches where through where the glass should be protecting it so he didn't need to unlock it at all yeah just like little things Mm -hmm. um like that are really fun and rewarding and it's it's you know how many gags can you fit into one moment, right? Exactly. Yeah, I almost wish that like there was more surrealist stuff in here. I kind of wish that the audience didn't know the haunted house was fake before Buster goes into it. Sure. Because that's like set up right at the start that there's this haunted house these guys are operating out of and it's all phony. And I think it would have been fun if like we didn't know that i mean it's obvious once you're seeing anything inside the house but like if that was a reveal for later Mm -hmm. um and so that you know we could kind of be like oh what's this and they could have played with making things maybe like a bit weirder sure i think that might put it more towards except for probably the reveal at the end put it more towards being an actual horror movie because it reminds me of I forget what it was called, but it was by Roland V. Lee, and it had... Lon Chaney? Oh, you're thinking of The Monster with uh, by Roland West. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, Roland V. Lee is a different director. Yes. But, um, yeah, we're, you know, very physical comedy, um, and it is a horror movie, and he, like, our main guy just, like, happens to wander into it. I was thinking, like, less something that would push it more towards horror and more something like a Fleischer cartoon... Oh, sure. Where it's just like a little more out there, a little more surreal, playing with things a little bit more, like more gags, like assembling a dude, more gags that do make you think like, wait, what the fuck is going on? Sure. Um, Yeah, I really like that kind of stuff. And I think I think if you go into this short knowing it's called The Haunted House, you need to just be prepared to wait a while before we get to The Haunted House. But yeah, it's very spoopy. Um, you know, the ghosts are just guys with bed sheets on walking around. There's dudes yeah. in a skeleton costume that's very much like, you know, skeleton unitard you pick up at Spirit Halloween. Um, <laughs> what I do like is like you can see elements of, say, Scooby-Doo mm. in this and gags that you see in Scooby-Doo, like when like they're running from the ghosts uh, and then Shaggy will like do something like directing traffic with the yeah. ghost that Buster does here. Like it's a very similar kind of humor. Spoopy. Yeah. It's spoopy. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I don't know really if I have much more to say about it. It's like a pretty simple, fun little short. And as I said before, I don't want to just be describing every joke in it. For sure. Um, but yeah, do you have any closing thoughts, Sarah? Just that I appreciate 
Um, and this is like for all of Buster Keaton's stuff, but you really see it here because he has to act scared mm. that he does a really good job of conveying that scared or surprise through his physicality of like jumping up and landing on his back or whatever, because he isn't quote unquote allowed to show that fear in his face. Sure. Yeah. There's like a lot of good moments here where because of his physicality, a ghost will pop out and Buster will jump back scared. But like when Buster jumps back, it means that he like jumps up onto the second floor of the house kind of thing. Yeah. Just a lot of like fun, you know, proto parkour. Um, <laughs> I think in the past we've talked about this um, probably with a bunch of films from this era too, that the line between comedy and horror is very thin because the basic sort of um, structure of like setting something up, causing anticipation, and then surprising with something unexpected is the same mm -hmm. in both. It's just you're either looking for a laugh or a scream. Um, so horror comedies, I think that's why they like go together better than like other genre blends. Yeah, I would agree. And maybe that's why it works so well when he will, you know, um, I don't want to say undercut, but gives you the unexpected. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening, Creatures of the Night. Uh, we really enjoy doing these horror-adjacent episodes, and it's nice to do a short one uh, this time <laughs> around. Some of the last few ones have been very, like, involved because what with the votes, um, popular big deal movies often get picked. Um, speaking of which, if you would like to vote for the next horror adjacent bonus episode, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and signing up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. We wouldn't be able to do these bonus episodes without our patrons. So a big thank you to each and every one of them. And thank you to everyone listening and sharing the show. Um, we will be back to our regularly scheduled Scream Scene programming next Wednesday. So we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.